If you have your Bibles with you or your app, would you turn to Matthew 11? We'll be in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. Matthew 11, we'll be reading, I'll give you the verses here in a second because we'll skip a few. Just as a way of reminder, we'll continue and really to finish this series in August of small things dealing with covenant friendship. And I am really excited about today's sermon because um, I've really wrestled with this one this week. And you know, not to say that I don't some weeks, but this one was weightier on me this week. So hopefully I'm able to communicate uh, the really the richness and the depth of the, the passage that we have in front of us. Because I think there is a great weight that Matthew has uh, in this particular passage for those who hear. Uh, we'll be in verses 1 through 6, and then I'm going to hop up a few verses to verses 18 and 19. So I'll skip from uh, verses 7 to 17. If you would, please stand for the reading of Christ's Word. May you hear the Word of Christ this morning. After Jesus had finished instructing His twelve disciples, He went on from there to, each, uh, to teach and to preach in the towns of Galilee, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should I expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Verse 18. For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he is a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this morning that we can receive your word that we can gather around your word, be a people of your word. And so now I pray that we would put our guards down, that we, we allow the, the emotional walls, the psychological walls that we have built around our hearts, may you completely destroy them so that we might be entertained by your word and be completely overwhelmed by your word this morning. And so may you do your work this morning of building a people who are unified in the Spirit, but also a people ready for action because the Spirit is working in our lives. Speak at this time, Lord. We offer these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you might have uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible written by Sally Lloyd-Jones. You might read it to your children. You might have heard about it. Uh, but there's this great phrase that Sally Lloyd-Jones writes. Uh, she takes a number of very famous biblical passages and biblical stories from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and she interweaves this story of what this king is like when he is going to show up. And so you have this expectancy in the Old Testament as she narrates it. And then she jumps into the New Testament and shows how the king has now arrived. But when she gets to this word love in the New Testament, she translates it 
differently from what we might say. Because we hear the word love, we might have different connotations, different meanings that we might think of. But here's how she translates God's love. It is that wonderful, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Isn't that fantastic? What a great way to describe the love of God. Let me read it one more time. It is that wonderful, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. This is the gospel in children's language. They understand wonderful. They understand never stopping. They understand never giving up, unbreaking. They understand always and forever. It's almost like they know this kind of language because mom and dad, grandparents have spoken to them this way. And so Sally Lloyd-Jones helps us understand the heart of God, of what this gospel is like in a children's ear. And speaking of the heart, I'd like to begin with some questions this morning. I want us to really dig deep on these questions to be able to probe our own hearts and our minds as it relates to and will relate to the passage that we have in front of us. First, what does your weekly schedule look like? I mean, if you could format it in front of your eyes, what does your weekly schedule look like? Could you account for every minute? For the most part, at least every hour, right? Or every half hour. Do you know where you spend your time? Are you thinking about it? And if there was a connection, and I think there is, how you spend your time and what you value and you place it onto your calendar, where are you spending your time? Who are you spending it with? What does that calendar say about what you value in your day-to-week pattern of life? Here's some more questions. What is your view of self? How do you think of yourself? I mean, do you really perceive and think deeply about yourself? I did this to this person and they did this to me. How do you evaluate that? How do you understand yourself in light of other people? And in a week's time, did you measure yourself against someone this week? I'd put a $100 bill that you did either consciously or unconsciously, you were measuring yourself against someone else, good or bad, but you were measuring yourself. And how did you measure yourself? Higher, lower than that person? Did you uh, consider yourself prettier, uglier, wealthier, poorer, smarter, dumber? We already know where Blake stands on this. (laughs) How do we measure these things, because we do it all the time, church. We do it all the time. And sometimes we don't even realize that we're doing it. And last thing, who do you say that Jesus is? I'm trying to connect that question to last week, the end of last week's sermon, because I gave us three plausible reasons of who we think Christ is. He's either a lunatic, a liar, or he's Lord. Who do you say that Jesus is? But more than that, what does your life say about who Jesus is? I ask plenty of college students that uh, over the years is that I could really care less about what you say about Christ. But what does your life say about who this Jesus is? Because I want to see you understanding that there is a transformation happening right in your midst, whether you see it or you don't. 
Because we can believe something. We can say that we think this about something, but our life isn't changed in connection with our belief. So what does your life say about who you understand Jesus to be? I've wondered this week about this wonderful, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love. So my questions this morning are really this. I've already asked you many, but here are the main ones that I want us to chase and wrestle with. How does Jesus' friendship with us change us? How does Jesus' friendship, because remember, he started the friendship. He came to us. And also, how does it mold us and truly make us a unique people? If we are the church, then we are a set-apart people, a unique people in a lot of ways. We might look like the rest of the world around us, but there are some very unique ways in which we are utterly different. And also, what does it mean to be a people of that wonderful, that never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love? So let me begin this morning by returning to verse 2 that we have in Matthew 11 and see what this looks like. Verse 2, this is John's question that he passes to his disciples to deliver to Jesus. Here's the question. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? That's the question. Hey, give this to the Messiah. I've seen what he's done firsthand, but also seen it from a distance. Are you the one we are to expect? And let me pull some background on this. Here is a man who has been devoted to the mission and to the work of Christ since its beginnings. The earliest encounters that we have in the Gospels is with Jesus' mother and John's mother. And that John leaps in the womb over the fact that Jesus is near. And so you have this early encounter and then you have John preparing the way for Jesus from its very inception. They have known each other their entire lives and here is John preparing the way for the one, the light, the Messiah, the one who is to come. So I want you to get caught up in his doubt. The question that he's asking, it's a question of doubt. It's a question with deeper questions. It's a question of insecurity as well. Here's a man who has been devoted to the mission and work of Christ since its beginning. And here he is in prison, probably malnourished, probably depressed. And likely the questions won't stop haunting him. Is this really the Jesus who was expected to come? So let's get serious for a minute this morning, church. There are several ways uh, that you can look. You can look in front of you, behind you, left of you, and right of you in the pews this morning. And I know for a fact that there are people who are hurting emotionally. There are people who are hurting uh, mentally, physically, financially. I'm not blind to this. There are people hurting, and a huge majority of us hurting in many ways in the church this morning and yet they come to church every single Sunday and they cover it up don't we we're, we're good at it we cover it up walk in here put on a face like everything's okay and sometimes it's not to confess I've been that way for several Sundays we all have and I want this church to definitely be a place of emotional security but also emotional authenticity where we can come in and say you know what I'm not doing good and it hasn't been a great week 
This has been hurting my life. My marriage has been tough this week. My life with other people has been tough this week. And so we do hurt and Lord willing, we do open up and don't keep the face on, but we take the face off and tell people that we truly are in a bad place this week. Because if there's one place where we can be emotionally uh, authentic with one another, hopefully it is here in the midst of people who do love us and do value us on so many levels. The only path towards healing is to be able to name the pain that we have. Do you realize that? I mean, that's why that's one of the reasons and mantras of AA is you have to name the very pain that's killing you slowly. It's one of the things of counseling is that you have to name it and to own it in order for the path of healing to happen. So we should name the pain and we should ask the questions of doubt that's lingering in our heads. So I don't want you to think that I want you just to read the scripture and to read John the Baptist's question. I want you to feel the weight of John the Baptist's question that he passes on to these disciples because I'm convinced We've all been there. We've been tired. We've been hurting. We've been powerless. We've been fragile and we've been hopeless. Because that's where John the Baptist is. And like John, we can ask the question times, are you truly who you say you are, Lord? Because that's what he's asking. Are you the one who's expected to come? In other words, are you truly are the one you say you are? Because if you are, I'd like for you to show up right now because I'm in need of you. I'm tired, I'm hurting, I'm hopeless, I'm powerless and fragile. Will you do your work? But more than that, we want a God who will always show up in the worst of times, don't we? We want a God who will show up in the worst of our times, in that moment and in that time. But more than that, we want a God who will always show up in the worst of times to stop our suffering. We want him to put an end to our pain and to prevent more heartbreak. We don't like heartbreak, do we? We want a God to stop those things and we favor a God. We can tell what to do at our own will and our own whim. Church, that's not the God of the Bible. He's not a God who marches in and sweeps in and takes us away and prevents the pain from continuing. He's not always like that. The former that I described, that God is a God under our control. The latter is the one, the God of the Bible, where we submit our lives and to say, your will be done. We submit our lives to that God's control. And based on what John the Baptist has been up to up until his imprisonment, he's seen and heard Jesus healing the blind. He's seen the deaf uh, 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 healed. He's seen the crippled healed. Yet, even though he's witnessed the dead raised to new life, as I read his words, he doesn't really want assurance or reassurance of who Jesus is, who he says he is. He is wanting this God to take control, to take control of this situation, imprisonment, and malnourishment that he's in. A God who will stop his suffering and even prevent his impending death because he knows it's right around the corner. But here's Jesus' consoling words to John. Did you catch them? Blessed, is those, blessed are those who aren't offended by me. In other words, 
God wraps his goodness around anyone who loves Christ. That's what we mean by blessing is that he gives his presence. It's not that he gives us stuff. We tend to think of blessing as the the property that we have, but it's not that. It's the blessing is the fact that Christ and his presence is in our midst. That is real life. That is blessing. And so Jesus is telling John this, you serve a God who is with you despite your circumstances. You serve a God who is with you despite your pain. You serve a God who is with you despite your questions. And you serve a God who is with you despite how much you try to control him and your situation. He's trying to remind John, who is very understanding about who this God is, that you can't control the situation, John. You've seen the healings that have happened. You've seen the dead raised. You need to understand that this might be a part of the very will of God himself. Church, one takeaway from this interaction between John and Jesus is this. And I want us to take this to heart. God never promises to march in and take us out of the worst of our situations. But he does promise to always be with us in the worst of those situations and circumstances. He promises to be with us. He doesn't promise to take us away from those Because we know friends do that, don't they? Ultimately, friendship is about those who are there despite the horrendous things that we're going through. They can walk with us in the midst of these events. True friendship is about the ones who drive us to our cancer treatments. True friendship is those who sit over coffee and sit with us in our dining rooms talking about whatever. True friendship is about those who cook meals for us when we've lost a loved one. True friendship is those who offer to pick up our children and so that we can focus on true family matters between spouses or between others. True friendship is those who listen to us weep again and again and again and they don't say a word, but their presence is there. That's friendship. And shortly before... If I can go back into the Old Testament that Moses goes to Pharaoh and to preach this message of liberation that God is about to bring about for the people of Israel, what does he tell Moses? Do not fear, for I am with you. And then if we move into the New Testament, after Christ resurrects from the dead, what is the last message that he gives to his disciples in Matthew 28? For I am with you until the end of age. Church, friendship with Jesus is to have a friend who promises to always be with us and to be for us. That is the friendship that we encounter throughout the New Testament, but it's the friendship that we can encounter even today as well. He invites us to do the same to others. You are to be for people and to be with these people despite their circumstances and despite who you think they might be. That is Friendship. But Jesus had his critics in his own day, as we see in this passage as well, in in, uh, verses 18 and 19. These critics show up, and they had such a shallow understanding of grace and mercy. Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, fellow Israelites always criticized Jesus for doing very inappropriate things, such as being with and for sinners. I mean, how cruel, right? How inappropriate that you would extend grace to the worst of people in the world, 
tax collectors and sinners, how dare you? How dare you talk, joke, and laugh with these sinners at dinner? How dare you share bread and drink with such depraved and unrighteous people? How dare you extend a table? Church, if we slip into such a mindset, we are no different from the people in Jesus' day. We become the critics of Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? That uh, as I've seen shared a couple of times this week, and I think it's extremely true, is that as soon as we draw a line and say, you over there, get away. This is not the ways of Jesus. As soon as we draw a line, it might be the case that Jesus has already stood on the other side of the line with those very people that we have drawn the line. make sin big don't we and grace cheaper Jesus befriends the unrighteous he befriends the sinner the depraved the marginalized and the deplorable you know why That's the scandal of grace. The scandal of grace is that we understand that sin is big, but grace is bigger. And I want us to struggle with that. Not that I am. Grace is scandalous, it's offensive, it's shocking. Grace is outrageous. Do you understand that? Is Because when we hear about grace in the church, we usually downplay it. Because we hear it so many times and we don't understand the weight of it. Because what we're saying about grace in the church is this, church. We're affirming that Scripture is saying, and I'm taking a quote from a pastor. It is we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the same time, we are more loved and more accepted in Christ than we ever dare hope for. Whew. I'm going to stop. Verse 19. Because here's where all this passage moves toward. And it's the climax of this little passage in verse 19. The Son of Man, Jesus says, came eating and drinking. And they, the critics, say about him, he is a glutton, talking about himself. He is a drunkard, and he is a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. You know what? I'm thankful for that grace. Specifically, the grace demonstrated and shown and found in Christ. Definitely in this passage, but in my own life, I'm grateful for the fact that Jesus, the Son of Man, came eating and drinking with a glutton like me. One who's gluttonous and covetous over sin. One who is drunk with selfishness. Here comes Jesus, 
he is able to sit down at a table and he invites you and me to feast on his righteousness, his goodness, and to be with him. And let's be thankful for the grace has been extended, that the table has been extended to us for us to be able to eat with the king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For the mercy and grace that has been extended to us and really that friendship has been extended to us. And that's what we find so beautifully expressed in this passage is that a friendship has been expressed and has been manifested in your son. And it looks a whole lot like that wondrous, never giving up, never backing down, that always and forever love. And so as often as we can sometimes forget that we are not loved, and we can allow that, that, that doubt and those questions to enter into our heads that the people around us don't love us and that there is not a God who cares for us. Let us remember this very day that there is a God who has extended grace to us. One who has shared a table with glut, glutton sinners like ourselves. It is easy for us to focus on the sin and make it big. But grace does not, it does not favor one or the other. It is favor in and of itself for the ones who are broken. And forgive us, Lord, for downplaying that and overemphasizing how we cannot be redeemed, how we are not worthy of your love. Because those are lies. And so may we understand that this covenant friendship that you have extended to us through your son is a friendship that cannot be broken. Because you always keep your promises. You are one who is always in favor of us. You're the one who befriended us before we reciprocated that friendship. And so, Lord, may we continue to keep our eyes on you. May we continue to lean into your presence and to see and to experience the favor and grace that has been given to us. And so, on top of that, may we also be a people who extend it to others. That despite their circumstances, despite their situation, despite their socioeconomic standing, Despite how much money they make, despite who the society thinks that they are and categorizes, that they are a people loved and valued by you, and may we stand with them and for them. That is the message of grace. And may we drown in that grace today and the days forward. We offer these things in the name of Christ. Amen.